0: Hello, the Internet, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. You may have caught the other day this spectacular production that the Egyptian government put on where they transported a bunch of pharaohs from one museum to another. When I saw the video, I first thought this was some over-the-top production of Verdi's Aida. Uh, But no, uh, it turned out to be a more Wagnerian public production with the mummies being transported in these specially modified uh, military vehicles with shock absorbers and climate control. And anyway, you got to go see the video if you haven't. And this reminded me of one of the extraordinary things about ancient Egyptian history, which is that we actually have the bodies of many of the people we study not just random people whose graves we find in the course of excavations, but in many cases, the actual people we know from history books. And it gives us a remarkable insight into their lives because we can correlate these two bodies of evidence and the climate in Egypt being what it is. What survives is not just the skeletons, but often soft tissue. And so some pretty famous people like Ramses II still go for a medical checkup to make sure that nothing is growing in him. I find it generally mind-boggling, in fact, kind of awesome, that we have the bodies of people who lived 4,000 years ago. We don't normally have that kind of access in Byzantium. Uh, now, we do study skeletons. Uh, I refer you to a previous uh, podcast episode with Chrysavurvu on precisely Byzantine skeletons and what we can learn from them. And I know that as historians, we're not supposed to fetishize the the star protagonists of history. Nevertheless, there's still something cool about having access to objects that were handled and used by the people we study. For example, I've worked a lot on an 11th century historian named Michael Ataliatis. I was also a judge. And we have uh, his own signature on a manuscript, which is kept in the um, Greek National Library. And we also have his ring. It has his name written around the band. Uh, It's a very interesting object. Now, by definition, every object that survives from Byzantium was handled by someone or other at some time, right? From the most luxury item to the rocks that are put in a wall. And all of these are studied by dedicated fields and disciplines, ranging from archaeology to art history, to the study of the Byzantine economy and so on. So let me make a very broad distinction at this point. Most of these items are studied in what we loosely call an objective way. In other words, they are measured, catalogued, inventoried, their composition and manufacture is studied where and how and why they were made, their subsequent history, what they tell us about society, economy, industry, and so forth. Now, there's another way to study them, which I might just call subjective, uh, which is to try to understand or imagine the way in which these objects interacted with the people who used them. That is, how they came into contact with their bodies and how they shaped experiences or sensory perception. And here's where my guest comes into the picture. My guest today is Betsy Williams, who is a curator at the Dumbarton Oaks Collection. This is a museum in Washington, D.C., which is part of a larger research center, the largest and most important research center for Byzantine studies in the world. It also happens to be the place where my historian, Nataliati's ring, is kept. Now, Betsy has written with insight and nuance about the interaction between the body and the object, and she focuses especially on some of the most intimate objects that survive, such as jewelry and textiles, so things that are actually worn on the body. And I was intrigued by her work because she speaks very well about how people experience the materiality of the objects that they interact with. I'll give you a personal example of this to illustrate how I went into this topic, what, how I was thinking about it. And it has to do with the digitization of reading materials. Now, having access to digital reading materials is an enormous asset uh, to me. I'm not going to deny that. It enables us to do all kinds of things that we couldn't before and to take our research libraries with us on a computer uh, when we travel and not have to carry around boxes of books and articles. Having said that, I realized pretty early on that the experience of reading a physical book was vastly superior for me for retention and memory compared to reading a book from a digital file. I find that the the tactile experience of holding the book, the position of a particular passage on the page, the smell of the book, its weight in my hands, all of these things gain traction and leave more vivid memories. It's just simply the case that the physicality of the book enhances my retention of its contents for a much longer period afterwards. So I wanted to talk with Betsy to explore how we might talk about the experience of the materiality of other kinds of objects, in her case, jewelry and textiles. Now, I should also explain the setup of the conversation that you're about to hear. Betsy had the wonderful idea for us to have the conversation while she was physically present in the vault of the collection of Dumbart Oaks. So, she's going to be holding up objects to the camera, so the objects that we will be discussing, and I, with my limited vocabulary for physical things, <laughs> will try to describe them for you. And in this way, we'll try to bring you into the, well, the kind of, well, virtual physical environment that we constructed for having this discussion. It was a great idea to make the experience of the objects a little bit more vivid for you. But I've also provided in the description of the episode some links where you can actually go and see the objects for yourself and see just how badly I've described them. As always, my thanks to Medievalists.net for reposting these episodes. Here then is my conversation with Betsy Williams. Betsy Williams, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So why don't we start out first with uh, you're telling us what your area of expertise is? How would you define it? Because you work in a number of different fields. Where do they intersect?
1: Yeah, so I consider myself maybe first and foremost a Byzantine and an early Islamic art historian. Um, That was my dissertation, and I was trained in these areas. Um, But professionally, I am a curator. I'm the curator for the Byzantine collection here at Dumbarton Oaks. You know maybe I can describe really really quickly what a curator does. I have a very deeply academic side, so a good part of my day is spent researching the collection and writing, reading scholarly literature, communicating with my you know my university colleagues. But I would say that my day-to-day life is actually quite pragmatic. So there's this balance of deep research and academic and intellectual work and very pragmatic concerns or practical concerns. So things like you know, monitoring the climate um, in the galleries with the collection mm-hmm. manager or um, thinking about conservation work uh, for the objects, re- researching the ownership history of the o- objects. It's very important as well. We get requests for objects to be borrowed, right? Um, other institutions having loan exhibitions. So this is sort of uh, what attracted me to the work. I very much love this kind of constant back and forth between the very, yeah, intellectual academic concerns and the day-to-day work of a curator. And I would say working with objects is for me, like directly with the objects is for me the kind of dividing line, right? Like that was why I went into curatorial work um, in the first place. I get a lot of inspiration working with objects and caring for things. Um, I think about their care as well. And so this is uh, really where where I am. And, and I would say that maybe maybe the last point about this professional work is that as a curator, I'm one part of a, a bigger team. And so a lot of my work is actually also working with conservators or collection managers or the art tech to make my work happen. So yeah, I would say that's how I define my myself.
0: Yeah, that's very useful. Um, In in preparation for our discussion, I mostly, you know, focused on the things that you've written, uh, which are, you know, scholarly publications, but Mm -hmm. I got the sense from them that you have a close engagement with the material objects themselves and that you care for them. Um, I was wondering, so is conservation work something that you do, like, I don't know, polishing the silver or whatever it is? No
1: no you know this is uh i i will uh, often work w- i work very closely with conservators to determine the needs of the objects mm. um and so for example in this uh textile catalog that we recently completed here or been working on here at Dumbarton Oaks i teamed up with a conservator to look at the objects and think about the objects so i myself am not trained to be a conservator it's a it's a separate uh it's a separate training a very scientific yeah. training yeah Right. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I am the art historical side of the equation.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. No, I've spoken to them. And it seems that they have a whole different training that's very oh, yeah. expensive and rigorous and so forth. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So what I wanted to talk to you primarily is about materiality and the materiality of objects in part, because yeah, I heard you speak about that topic very eloquently at the Dumbart Oaks teaching day that we had. Oh, well, <laughs> years ago when, anyway. Um, And so material, so I have a very conflicted kind of relationship with that because I have the sense that our work as scholars or my work certainly is just becoming more and more abstracted from the particular objects on which it's based. Just as an example, like my main sources are texts and texts come from manuscripts, but I don't, you know, deal with the manuscripts, or if I do, I look at them digitized on a on you know a website somewhere, and then they're edited and published as books. That was like the 20th century model, and now they're being digitized, and they're all these you know digital databases of texts, and scanned PDFs of the books. Like often, you're not even looking at a physical book, which isn't even right how someone a thousand years ago would have written it and read it, okay. and Across all of our disciplines, I feel like we're 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 moving farther and farther away from the very particular material objects, yeah. and creating this very abstract, frictionless engagement, right, with Byzantine material. At the same works, for like all the corpora of inscriptions and everything online right papyri online seals online and and jonathan over in the seals collection is doing this which is an enormous service like i'm not this is not a critique or anything and and i'm you know very much part of it but we do lose sight of where it all starts which might be just one manuscript one object so how i mean do you have any kind of general thoughts about how we might recover the the primary irreducible experience of the material object in this digital world?
1: Yeah, you know this is a great. It's it's as you're as you're asking the question, you know, I'm thinking I'm looking at this problem from that va- a very different vantage point, because uh, as an art historian, as a person working with the objects on the day to day level. I often have struggled with how to understand textual sources, because when I read editions or when I read text-based scholarship, I actually always wonder, you know, what manuscript is (laughs) preserved? Right? Like, so I always feel like I struggle with methodology for text scholarship because I come at it from the perspective of, yeah, a material culture person. And, you know, yeah, how do we, you know, this is a really fascinating question. I think we'll be talking more about it um, as we go on, but something that I have been thinking a lot about, you know, is access, right? Like having the digital experience of papyri or seals or textiles or collections online gives such incredible access to collections. Yeah. And that has been our focus, right? Like we are very, as museum professionals, we keep thinking, yeah, we want people to use these things to see what we have in the collection. But I think you're right to say that the, the the danger is that that becomes an excuse for no longer needing to engage with the things themselves. And I think especially in manuscript studies, this is, you know, they mm-hmm. were sort of the first to digitize already. You know, I worked on a manuscript exhibition 15 years ago, 10, 15 year, years ago, excuse me. And I remember at the time, like we were looking at digital facsimiles before that thing even existed. So they were really the first to kind of go down that digitization path. So yeah, I I think this is a great question. And for me, it's just this tension between original and reproduction and access, because at the end of the day, we have to grapple with the physical thing that exists and survives and is a record of a human being making it or using it. Mm -hmm. um, and so on. So, yeah, this is a, you know, a great, a a, a general trend that I think uh, we should be thinking about.
0: What are the dimensions that we lose first from the, from the object when we move it into this sort of abstract, infinitely reproducible digital formats that we have, but we lose certain things. What are those?
1: Yeah, I think in the first place, we lose the sense of, uh, you know, the weight of the object, the tactile experience of of handling the object. I think that especially with photography, there's a privileging of visual experience over other kinds of experiences. For jewelry and textiles, you know, those are my areas of research. And um, I've been thinking a lot about how difficult it is to... Understand the objects to understand textiles and jewelry without understanding their physicality and their relationship to the human body. Actually, I think those the tactility, sensory experience, weight, weightiness those are the first things to go.
0: You read descriptions sometimes of, for example, Byzantine emperors loaded down with jewelry and jewels everywhere. And
1: you read that and
0: you're like, okay, wearing a lot of bling or whatever. But if you actually, like you said, factor in the weight of all of this, like it it mustn't have been easy to wear.
1: Yes, and I haven't, you know, we are in, we yeah. haven't said that we are in object storage at Dumbarton Oaks right now, precisely to get, you know, thinking about this, this topic. And I've pulled for you an earring and a ring uh, that date to the 10th century. And I'm going to hold them up to the camera and we'll describe them. But I also would like to have your reaction because it's very much on the on the topic.
0: Oh, wow. Is that the earring?
1: So this is a pearl earring. um, And I would say this is about the size. uh, It's a pearl and gold earring. It's about the size of a small beer coaster. That's what I keep thinking about when I I see it. So it's pretty big and tons of pearls on both sides. So I'm going to show you the other side. All right.
0: Should I try to describe this?
1: Yeah, describe it. And I'm going to hold it up so you can get the visual.
0: Right. Okay. So first, let me just say that my vocabulary for material things is terrible. (laughs) I'm an abstract guy, you know, generally. Okay. So the frame of it seems to be circular Um, the, the top part. So the semicircle on the top is a, just a gold band um, and along the bottom part of the frame are arranged a series of pearls. And then there are um, various like uh, there's a there's an elaborate scaffolding yes. uh, that contains other loops in which other pearls are put and they they go upward and then there's a row of them along the bottom.
1: Yes. And I would say, you know, maybe to talk about the weight, because that's, as we were just saying, the kind of first thing that disappears from our our standing and looking at a photo of this or looking at it, describing it uh, visually, Uh, it weighs about as much as I've been doing this by quarters because quarters are a yeah. standard, standard unit of measurement. <laughs> uh, so I would say about a dollar worth of quarters. Oh. I mean, it's, he- it's heavy.
0: It's heavy. Is it It's, it's not gold? It's quite it? heavy.
1: It's gold, yeah. This oh, is gold, gold is very heavy. Yeah, gold yeah. and pearl pearl earring. Um, and as I say, it's one of a, a pair. We actually have the other object that relates to this on loan in the galleries. It's in a private collection. It's been loaned to us. So it, we have the, the set. And when I look at this object, you know, all of the pearls, just pearl upon pearl, there are about 40 pearls. I don't know how many pearls, 30, a ton, a ton of pearls. They're natural pearls. They're matched in size and color, which is really hard. Um, So when I'm seeing an object like this, this, to my mind, relates to imperial costume. Like I'm thinking of pearl studded. Loros that we know, and so I rarely say this, but I think this is an object that we can uh, very closely associate with imperial imperial dress or court dress, at the very least, and and that gets to your point, Anthony, because you know this is heavy; it's very ostentatious. Yes. It, I, I would say it almost, it's it's more costume than it is dress, right? It feels like regalia, okay? Right. And, and I would say what I find so fascinating about it is if you would look at it visually, you know, it's very, again, um, just a showpiece. But what I find really interesting is when I move it a little bit, the pearls move ever so slightly.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: um, And the light reflects off of the pearls changes the sort of visual effect and when I'm thinking about Byzantine imperial dress and I think from source you know you you chime in with your source mindset here but I'm thinking about this this tension in Byzantine court dress between kind of a static presentation and this ever- uh, ever so slight suggestion of movement—that right. that's part of this kind of wonder, right? A and glittering, wonder, uh, glittering of the yeah. imperial dress. So for me, just even the sort of mindset of this object is getting you at at imperial dress. And I will say that there was a matching earring, and there's also a ring, and I'm going to hold up the ring.
2: Oh wow! And you
1: will see. Um, I, it's more like a pinky ring. It's a, it's a pearl and gold ring, same color pearls, same wire, gold wire. Um, look, it's, uh, has a central bezel. So the bezel is the the sort of front part of the ring that would have once contained a, a stone. It's missing a precious stone. Yeah. And you can see it just is. So this is part of a whole set, right? Like a, so the, a pearls pearl go, ring.
0: the pearls go all the way around the ring on both sides. So they're like three yes. rows yeah and oh wow yeah no that's a very intricate gold yeah framework for embedding all the pearls and a question about the earring so the so the loop around the top that is that goes in the ear that's pretty thick
1: yeah this is a great question i wonder with this piece we just don't know the the earring is slightly damaged on the one side so it's hard to see i i I tend to think that the earring would have been oh, a, clo- a closed a closed loop and, loop and that there would have been a smaller loop to go okay. through to go through the ear because it gets at the question and again this is the materiality question and yeah. the experience of of jewelry in relationship to the body on a view in a display case we see it we show it one way right like you look at it frontally yeah and it's it's hard for me to tell did it actually go how was it oriented on the body did it face forward did it face outwards to the sides and so, how would the earring, uh, how would the the loop have been manipulated to display either frontally or to the side? Um, and again, in the galleries, we just can't explore that possibility. But as you see me holding it up to the my, I'm holding it up for the listeners. I'm holding it up to my neck so that yes. you can see. Yeah, yeah. But it's huge. It's huge and very visible. So, um, yes. and would look best, I think, frontally, actually.
0: So. And if you had two of those on, and rings, and presumably necklaces, and a crown.
1: I mean, you know, yes. the light, the the glitter, as you said, and the shining light emerging from the costume would be incredible. So yeah, I mean, this is an object that I I find incredible that it even survives. <laughs> it's sort of, and as as I'm handling it, my thoughts, you know, what's going through my mind, I'm thinking. I would not have been this close to an emperor or empress or court to have ever seen this in the ninth, 10th century when it was made. I mean, I, you know, think of the restrictions yeah. around, around the, em- so the fact that I'm able to handle it is just boggles my mind.
0: Right. Cause that object that you're holding, that was worn by someone who we very likely know of from our sources.
1: Yes. Likely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wait, wait. wait. So is that uh, for men or women?
1: I mean, this is a great question because we have a tendency to assume that surviving jewelry was worn by women because of our expectations of, um, you know, gendered wear or ornamentation, adornment and kind of gendered preconceptions. But we actually have quite a good deal of archaeological evidence, visual evidence, and evidence from the objects themselves that men were wearing jewelry. And so I think that it's it raises the question about how we have to work through modern mindset, modern eyes to get at their concepts of, of jewelry and dress.
0: Oh, the men at the court were certainly uh, adorned with uh, gems and all kinds of uh, uh, jewelry. I, I, distinctly remember eusebius describing constantine even this is so this is very early on entering the the council of nicaea and he Mm -hmm. enters and his robes are so gem encrusted that eusebius comments he was like an angel of god uh it's not how i imagine angels but um (laughs) no i think that uh they were they were overloaded with this with these kinds of material objects and i don't think they wore them very often for that reason i mean this must have been a special occasion especially mm-hmm. this kind of jewelry was probably used in connection with specific ceremonies of presentation right? like like uh, the emperor appearing in the imperial box like that's when you were most likely to see the emperor wear this stuff yeah. or in a Hagia Sophia or something like that where yeah. there are actually light effects so you know yes. they they actually manipulated light to create like ah oh, and here's the emperor um, so that stuff might have shone and glittered and you know been designed for that reason
1: and that may be why it's so large that it was meant right. to actually be seen you know i've always it's interesting hearing you I've always been thinking of the intimacy of jewelry, of how it invites people to to sort of look at look at the jewelry up close, I guess. Mm. Um, but what I think you're right is to say that there was um, this presentation quality. And so perhaps the reason it's so large is that it could be viewed by people assembled or people from people far away. Um, I hadn't quite thought of that before. It's really. It depends on the light. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. So. That's quite fascinating. I had not seen that. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I want to hold it, too. Um yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there are all of these senses that are activated in the, you know, specific moments when these objects are used as intended that we obviously lose in in our photographs and in the way we describe and discuss them. So I wanted to ask you another theoretical question. We'll come back to some other objects that you have to show us. And that has to do with something that historians so in my line of work, we call the material turn and we we call it the material turn because it comes in the aftermath of what we used to call the linguistic turn. And the linguistic turn <laughs> was this profound shock at the realization that what we know about history, we know through our textual sources, and that our textual sources are not giving us an immaculate Picture of reality, but everything is filtered through whatever their discursive politics are, like a series of representations. Like we don't actually know this historical figure or that event, but we know a textual representation of it, which is an abstraction. And so a lot of historical research turned to the study of these representations, right? And you would have a series of articles, books, and articles, and everything arguing. Well, I'm not going to really tell you about this historical thing because we don't know. I'm going to talk about the sequence of representations of it that we have, which for anybody who like, really wants to know what happened is OK. I mean, I understand the methodological priority of doing that, but it gets us away from the thing, which is actually even further removed, you know, to begin with from the things that you have there behind you in the glass cases. So now after having gone through linguistic turn for a few decades, the historians are talking about the material turn. Like we're having to re-engage with the stuff of history, be they viruses, right? Or the conditions of material life that we can know through archeology span and all of that. And, and we're struggling with that because we have the linguistic turn hanging over our head. <laughs> Is that a debate that's played out in the fields that you're active in?
1: Yeah, this, uh, again, I'm so, I, I so appreciate discussing this with you as a historian coming at a similar problem, maybe from a slightly different angle, you know, compared to art history. In some ways, art history in its DNA, in its origin, concerned itself with Objects, right? Like I'm thinking of foundational art historical work in the 19th century that really sought to grapple with objects in museum collections, to look at them, to determine their date and who made them. I'm thinking of work by scholars like Alwaz Regal, who was 19th century, you know, um, museum art historian, museum professional working directly from objects. And what I think is really interesting in in art history, and maybe this is a parallel to what you're describing in historical studies, is that that empirical type of art history sort of went underground for a while (laughs) as the field turned to questions of visuality and visual studies for many, many decades, actually. And I think that was a concern with trying to understand, you know, how did viewers react to artwork? What was the engagement of a viewer with an artwork? And in really the past 10 years or so, uh, there has been this resurgence of that old materially focused art history, particularly as it's practiced in museums, I would say, Mm. Uh, looking at objects again, maybe. And I would say that It is bringing in developments that took place in archaeology and art and anthropology that kind of continued that material culture, you know, material study, material culture um, approach, and come back to art history with this sort of more advanced theoretical frame. So the questions now in art history are things like craft and making the experience of making you know the cultural values of the materials the use of the objects you know what does it the tactility as that we were talking about before
2: mm-hmm.
1: object biographies you know what experiences do objects have over time giving them a kind of life story or a, a kind of a biography right and those are really very complex theoretical models that i think in art history we are taking a lot from our colleagues in archaeology and anthropology it's all coming together really uh, to help us understand objects again and so what i find kind of peculiar if i'm as a coda to this maybe thought i'm having here is that from the perspective of museum professionals like if i'm looking at this taking off my art historian cap now and putting on my museum professional cap the debate in museum studies and museum uh professions right now is whether collections are even necessary for the functioning of a museum so in a way you know it's a kind of fascinating thing for me to think that museums are being imagined as places of you know social encounter or community and that objects may or may not be necessary to that function. Uh, so I don't know what to make of that. It was just something that as I'm, I'm talking and thinking about this comes, comes as an interesting, interesting thought. So parallels and differences.
0: What would bring the crowds to the museum if not the objects in them?
1: I think there's this idea that we could do, you know, loan exhibitions or community-sourced exhibitions. Uh, I think there's kind of a, a just a very dramatic reconceptualization of museums' mm-hmm. function that in the past museums were understood as repositories for these things. Right. Very very material concern and now there's a just a different a different focus going on. So
0: we can have a whole separate discussion about museums. I mean, that's a that's yes. a fascinating topic in its own right. So I want to get back to the theoretical issues that you were mentioning. So especially, I think, the introduction of a concern of the other senses and not just visuality. Yeah. Um, And I think your work focuses a lot on that, too, the the tactile experience of some of these objects. And, you know, it's funny that you should say that, that art history has this, you know, deep yeah, ancestry and like antiquarianism and collecting objects and, and that sort of thing. And then became theoretical primarily around visuality. Um, and in a certain sense, visuality is, is one of the easier senses to theorize. And the other ones are you know, much more difficult to get at, uh, though I think not necessarily less important. I remember uh, um, the department meeting I was at many, many years ago, and I think it was about um candidates for a position we had advertised so it must have been <laughs> a very long time ago <laughs> and one of my colleagues sort of super smart theoretically oriented literature right literary theory he just made this offhand comment that maybe there was an applicant who worked on material culture in you know classical antiquity and he said well i don't find all this material culture that theoretically sophisticated it's just you know so i thought that that comment revealed you know, something about where things might have stood in the 70s or 80s when, you know, he was in grad school. And I may have said, I don't remember if I said it, but in my recollection, it feels better if I actually said it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That, no, it's, you know, actually, it's exactly the opposite. That material culture studies are more theoretical, even sometimes than the literary side, because all of the discourse, all of the words that you use in connection with the object, have to come from theory because they're not coming from the object itself. Whereas when you're working with a text, you have a a ready given store of words that you you can rearrange them, you can contest them, you can subvert them, you can do all kinds of things with them, right? But they're there, like it gives you a good 90% of what you're working with. Whereas when you're working with an object that doesn't tell you, what it's about and I think this is why the Byzantines put epigraphs epigrams on everything to make these objects talk <laughs> oh you've got something there what do you got okay show us what you've got
1: um so I've got an object I've got the reliquary of Saint Demetrius it's a 13th century um pendant reliquary
2: yeah
1: and it depicts uh it de- it's done in uh, gold and cloisonné.
0: That's beautiful. So
1: Clausenet is a kind of enameling technique with very small um, gold wires. And this is an object that has an epigram around it, speaking, you know, talking about speaking objects or objects mm-hmm. that speak in this category, um, because you're right, there's a sort of, and in the Islamic world as well, there are these categories of objects that proclaim what they are and speak to us. And that's maybe part of the agent, you know, in a way, uh, this interest in materiality also gets at object agency, what objects want, which I think you're right. Is when the more you think about it, it becomes very uh, abstract. And and I use it all the time. I say, oh, this object, you know, if uh, if it reacts to the climate, I'll say, oh, this object doesn't want to do this right now. Or (laughs) right. So so anyway. So this is an object that that does speak, and it has an inscription around the the edge, and it says, um, the faith of Sergius carries the venerable receptacle of Demetrius's blood. Together with the bomb, he asks to have you as protector while he is living and when he is dead, along with the two martyrs who have won the prize of glory. And so this is an inscription that's sort of talking. It's an object that's talking about itself and what it does. And I'm going to open it for you because I think it's an object that getting at this kind of material aspect to it we don't really when it's on view in the galleries we have it closed so that you can see the cloisonné and the, the craftsmanship and the image of the saint but it's actually an object that opens and i think is only really under understandable when we when we open it so i'm just gonna there's there's a tiny pendant screw it's a tiny gold um, so maybe
0: let me describe what yeah describe you're what holding. you're saying No, I mean, so the whole pendant, it's about a quarter sized and shaped, but it's a bit thicker. So it's maybe like if three quarters were two or three quarters were stacked on top of each other.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So on the top, there's a, the hook that you probably put on a a necklace or a
1: a chain, a chain
0: and that, that little hook screws into the inside of the pendant. Yes. And so you unscrewed that. Wow. So I've I've taken got,
1: out the tiny tiny it's got threads. Yeah. I don't and know that I've yes. ever seen
2: a okay. Byzantine it, it, threads.
1: It, it it looks like a, you know, like an IKEA, like it looks like a Byzantine IKEA screw. <laughs> 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 um, just like you would assemble your sofa so and that, um, and the
0: inscription is written along the the edge of the, the
1: edges on the, edges on the rim, rim. Yeah, yeah, yeah and you have demetrius at the center and he mm-hmm. is labeled as Hagios demetrios so we we see him um and i'm just going to open it because it's something that until you see it open oh, it's wow sort of, yes yeah, so there's a hinge it hinges open and inside there is a it almost looks like a window it's a little uh, square and I'm going to have to take, I've been wearing gloves the whole time handling the art because um, I don't want to harm me. You know, I don't want to harm the objects. I'm going to have to, It's this is a little too delicate for me. So I'm going to have to remove my glove um, because when I open, when we, I'm going to hold it back up. Um, that little square is actually a chamber and I'm going to No open. way. Yeah. <gasps> So there are little doors and in the, <laughs> little doors open and there is a image of the saint of St. Demetrius yes. in, repo, in repose. He's laying down yes. um, his body and he's set underneath a little dome like structure. So I think it's trying to show the, the shrine in Thessaloniki
2: mm-hmm. that we
1: know to have been an important, um, important pilgrimage place. Um, so yeah, so this is an object that we if it you see it on view, static in the galleries, you have no sense of the interactive nature of this yeah. object. And 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 seeing it open, at least for me, gets me thinking about personal piety. You know, the experience of opening it and and looking at it and and praying to it becomes very palpable to me. And also I think there's an element of showmanship here the idea that I'm opening it up for someone else to show them. So it's yeah. a, it's an object that invites a, a viewer to kind of interact with the owner or the wearer. Um, so all of these questions that that are, are, you know, they they don't come to mind unless you open it and handle it and, and see it and begin thinking about it. So this is to the point of maybe the, the abstract theoretical, you know, I had never thought of it that way, but it's very well put, Anthony, to say that in a way, having an object and having to interact with the object raises many theoretical and abstract questions. And I would yeah. simply add that it requires imagination on some level. This is something I've been thinking a lot about. As scholars, we, you know, we, we try to have a scientific approach to the objects. And there's a limit to that, because at some point, we need to inject some degree of our, our own imagination uh, to the object. So.
0: Yes, and I have to add that this is a very sophisticated object. It's got so many levels to it. Images on the outside, the inscription on the rim, and then it opens up and there's a little window, and you open the the panels and and, and, and there's a little image inside a, a relief of the saint um lying down. And wait, was something else put in there at some point?
1: Yeah, so the inscription says um it has the bomb yeah. of the I think it's the mirror.
0: Yeah. From the, um, from the this, from, church in yeah. the Saaniki,
2: yeah.
1: Exactly. So so the question is, um, it, it certainly contained something. It, you know, the inscription says it held the muron, but it's unclear what that would have precisely been. Perhaps it was a small piece of cloth that had been dipped, mm. um, right? Uh, so... So this is what precisely it, it held is, is not clear, but I think that the fact that you have that little Demetrius in repose in the middle was almost like enough probably uh, uh-huh. because it's re- referencing right the shrine. But so, so the question is what, how literal, I mean, it's a great question. How literal is the inscription? Does the inscription mean it actually contains something or is it a kind of a metaphor uh, for containing?
0: But well, yeah, but there you're into, you know, literary interpretation.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, the, the object is giving you both a leg up, but also, you know, perhaps a liability in, in trying to understand how this was used, mm-hmm. because possibly it wasn't used in the same way by different owners. You know, if you have it, presumably this object has gone through many, many generations of different owners who you did it. You know, oh, maybe it spent a couple centuries in a box somewhere. I mean, you know, for all we know, but I doubt it. Um, it's really exquisite craftsmanship. So you also work with textiles. I mean, your, your writings about textiles are pretty interesting. They have to do with very large hangings that were put in like banquet rooms. And I mean, I'd like to talk about those, too. But maybe you have something to obviously something smaller <laughs> in the collection there to show us.
1: Yes. Um... I wanted to show you the tiny tunic, <laughs> but I can't fit it on the cart. So the tiny tunic is way more impressive. So let me let let me go get okay. the tiny tunic, and then um, I'm gonna have to move this over here. It's okay. We make it work somehow. I took the very large cart, but the large cart doesn't fit through the door. (laughs) 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 Uh, It's uh, it's okay, I've got it, we've got the tiny tuner.
0: See, Um, this materiality is having its revenge here.
1: Oh, completely, it's come after, it is, is, it's, I'm telling you, the objects want things, and we sometimes cannot provide what these objects want. Yeah, so I've brought out one textile. You know, I'm I'm limited because of COVID protocols to objects that I personally, myself, one person can handle. And in a way, in our collection, most of the textiles are fragmentary. Uh, So it's uh, very unusual that we have complete objects. So that also uh, sort of limits what I can show you related to dress, but I'm showing you here one object um, that I'm especially moved by. This is a a tunic. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, It is, I mean, pretty small. It's maybe the length of my forearm. So Mm -hmm. you can see it sort of um, giving you a sense of scale there. And it is more or less complete. So this is a, a relatively unusual example in our collection. Its size and its shape tells me that this is a child's tunic. This is a tunic that belonged to probably a quite small um, infant. Uh, if you look at the top of it, this is one of my favorite details. It's got a neckline that has a slit on one side, sort of like a baby onesie, if you think of onesies, yeah. you know, for, for, for um, you know, getting their big big heads through. Uh
2: Um,
1: And this piece is also very notable because it's got a cross embroidered right over um, the heart, right right under the uh, neckline on the front and on the back. So uh, this is a piece that we can guess belonged to someone who identified as Christian. You know, this is a a great object for talking about identity, dress and identity. It's from Egypt. And it's from Egypt. So you'll notice that it's it's quite uh, stained and careworn. So this is why I say this is an object that I find very moving because it it it's relatable to me in the sense that, uh, you know, I have small children. And so I see this object and I think Mm -hmm. about baby onesies. And at the same time, it is from a grave. It's a grave good. And so that's getting us thinking about child mortality in uh, Byzantine Egypt. This is dated, I date this to the fourth uh, to seventh century based on the, the shape and the and the um, decoration. So um, I think this is maybe with dress, something that comes through very powerfully is the connection to individual people because of the dimensions of the clothing and jewelry too. I think jewelry um, as well, this is us really thinking about the personal connection. To people. So, this is an object that really uh, I find uh, very moving, very poignant, and reminds me of how, because dress and textiles are so relatable to us as objects, it's easy to use our modern sensibilities to think about them. But I actually think this is an object that reminds me of how important it is to step back. And sort of say, okay, th- th- those are we have to get into their mindset, get into their time, um, and put aside our preconceptions as well.
0: So, do you think this is an object that would have been worn by the child in life, or are there is it a special class of garments that people are buried in?
1: Yeah, so this is an object that uh, that certainly would have been worn in life. The textiles that survive from Egypt often show signs of wear over you know so in other words that they're not woven for Mm -hmm. the grave so this one has some repairs on it um some mending that tells us it was it was really something that was well worn in life and that's getting back to this you know material culture questions and and um, maybe concepts borrowed from anthropology this idea of the the life biography of this object right because it, it started as an object as, a, as an item of dress intended to be worn you know, daily wear. It may have been worn by multiple people. It became a grave good. And then it was excavated. I use the term loosely because in the 19th and early 20th century, what counted as excavation was very different from today.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: it was excavated um, and then it became an art market object and then it became a museum object. And so it's had many life stages uh, along the way to wind up here with me at Dumbarton Oaks.
0: Yeah, so is that, so the color of it is a sort of dull brown? Um, Yes. Is that fairly close to what you imagine it would have been originally?
1: It may have been. um, It may have been a a slightly more vibrant. Um, That's something that I think is sort of hard Mm -hmm. when we look at these fragments is to understand that they were once quite vibrantly colored. They're often discolored from being buried in the grave. So it my once have been a bit more uh, colorful. I think in terms of, this is a, a really great example because this is more or less preserved. And I'm gonna show you another example that kind of gets at the challenges maybe of working with the objects, so.
0: Uh, I'm not sure, so this is a strip yes. of, is it a hide?
1: Yeah, so you're seeing uh, this is a rectangular strip um, of fabric that's been mounted and onto a backing. Um, so this is the conservation uh, intervention. Yeah. And it's showing you hide. Yeah, the ru- it has a very rough surface. So if I show it to you in three dimensions, yeah. you will see. Uh, it looks like a shag carpet.
0: Yes, yes, that's right.
1: And it's got a purple band coming down the fr- uh, center of it. Um, and I'm just gonna show you the back because this is uh, something where the conservators actually mounted it with windows so that you can see right. the back and you'll see it's maybe a little bit hard to see on the camera but it's smooth on the one side it is. So, right so it's not um, shaggy on both sides so what you're seeing is actually a fragment from a tunic and this is pretty classic dealer art dealer move they've cut it to a shape so this is scissors that's what's giving it this rectangular oh. nice rectangular shape they cut out because they like the pretty part, the pretty purple part in the middle.
2: Yeah.
1: And and what we're seeing here is actually the inside of a tunic. So this is a type of tunic, some kind of winter tunic. I call it the L.L. Bean fleece of <laughs> Byzantine tunics because it's got this shaggy, warm inside. And so what we're seeing here is, is really a fragment of dress. But you can see how complicated it is. Yeah. To to get from this object, right, that's a fragment, to original what it would have originally looked like, how it would have been originally used, and so that's uh, the challenge of of working with these materials, I think, for sure. So
2: and it's the... very
1: finely woven. I will say that the weave is incredible. So this was a luxury in yeah. its time. This is a very luxurious tunic.
0: What does the purple strip signify? Why is that there?
1: Yeah. So the purple strip, we often see in representations of dress and in complete tunics, these decorative elements that would go over the shoulders
2: Mm -hmm. uh, to the
1: front and the back of the tunic. These have a a Latin name called that we call them clavi, like clavicle, right, Mm -hmm. over your shoulder. Think of that. So so these were just embellishments, like decorative elements. And this tends to be when uh, dealers would sell these types of objects on the art market in 19th and 20th century these would be the things that they would cut out because they were beautiful compared to if you think back on that child tunic how stained it was worn it was they they tended to cut that ground they would cut away
0: yeah one thing that emerges from even from the literary sources is how colorful the dress was um in, in this period like as as colorful as you could make it or could afford. Ah, uh, to make it so the the social world w- was really vibrant in all of its colors, uh, and uh, some authors even like to talk about, you know, the different colors that people are wearing, and it was such a function of their um, offices too. Like different offices in the Roman state came with different colors and bands, and you know all that. And it, it's really a reminder of what we lose if, you know, if we don't think about these kinds of material culture aspects. And that's why I like, you know, what you've written about the, especially hangings uh, in the sort of textile category that uh, the inside of homes and presumably, you know, from the better off classes would have, so the walls were not bare, which is how we experience them if we're lucky enough to even excavate a wall, right? But we've lost all of the perishable objects that would have given the room its identity and its experience, really. Sometimes we have the mosaics, you know, they they survive or reliefs but it's very likely right that the majority of the adornment would have been in textile which is you know cheaper and much more sort of flexible
1: when i began my research my textile research i to be honest i had never thought about furnishing textiles as a category and i think the reason i i hadn't was for anyone who's taken an art history survey or an architectural history survey think on the line drawings of places like the Hagia Sophia right they're very interested in the architectonics the sculptural decoration yeah, floor permanent plans. floor plans the permanent installation and all of the ephemeral furnishings are written out and it gets back i think to the fact that we don't find textiles in these places like they're not found in yeah, sit, what we, what would be called in situ, right? Like in the place where they were used. So there's a disconnect because we have monuments, we have archaeological remains, and then we have textiles, furnishing textiles, dress textiles that are coming from grave contexts. So furnishing textiles, when they're found, are found often as like the outer wrapping for the body, sort of after they've been so worn out that they can't be used as curtains or rugs or tablecloths anymore those furnishings have been written out and it's really because we just we have this disconnect in the evidence and this is where i think actually textual sources almost are the best sources for understanding how the objects would have been used because the objects themselves um again their their context doesn't tell us that sometimes you're lucky with furnishing textiles and you'll get a more or less complete one or you'll get one that has you know um loops still on it so that you can kind of begin to say, okay, this was probably hung somewhere because it's got these kind of like curtain loops, you know, at the top and one end.
0: Here. So let me, let me show you what, so what are you seeing here?
1: So I'm seeing a tapestry in Anthony's living room and it's hanging on a rod and it's got uh, circular clips at the top in threes to kind of keep, well, and this brings up a great point, right? Because in order for you to hang that, tapestry flat you need to create a suspension system and you need to you need to think about the tension uh necessary to hold it up all those fixtures and textiles in the uh you know the byzantine world are lost so we just have to kind of imagine yeah look at this it's amazing so cool
0: so you people frolicking in a garden or something
1: <laughs> Yes. <laughs> But it brings up another point, Anthony, that I I think about getting back to this point of like imagining back in the textiles and to the point of sensory experience. Think about when you move out of a house or an apartment and you've taken all the furniture out, you've taken all the curtains down, you know, the echoing Mm. in the room, right? So I think it's also the textiles, dress, furnishing uh, also affected acoustics in the spaces and you know, visual, created visual screens for what could or couldn't be seen. Um, and you know that, you know, in, in liturgy, let's say, how essential that is to understand people coming in and out from behind the curtains. So, yeah, uh, it's just a whole category of evidence that is not imagined into the spaces and uh, requires a little extra work to, to put back in.
0: Yeah, I remember this from, I think, my conversation with Viscera about Yes Sophia, and she talks about the the rustling of everyone's clothes, right? Like if you have a thousand thousands of people in a Yesophia and they're all kind of moving about, like the, the kind of collective sound that that makes in such an echoing space and the hangings and possibly, you know, carpets and who knows. And you know, I've recently become more sensitized to the issue of hangings, you know, how they shaped the experience of a space because like before iconoclasm you were likely to have images of saints only on hangings or uh, an altar cloth or something like that, right? Not mosaics or painted icons on the walls, but in, in those media. And they're largely lost. And thanks to some literary sources, as, as you said, we, we can um, imagine them or we know that they were there. But the same, the same is true for all of these spaces, because you, you document in the catalog, you had all of these hangings that had these are like what we would call late antique right so they had dionysus and dryads and all of these you know creatures that would have been all along people's walls and yet you know when we talk about like late antique pagan motifs it's usually mosaics that we talk about and maybe altars yeah (laughs) but we're missing this whole category of um of objects that just are lost
1: One of my favorite objects in that catalog is a hanging from the MFA Boston, and it depicts a man in an arc in an arcade. Um, It's one arch that survives from what was once a much larger piece. And he is pulling back a curtain that's set in this arcade. So it's a textile that depicts an architectural feature Mm. Depicting a textile on a textile, <laughs> and a man who's pulling back the curtain, and I think it, it raises this, this very interesting question you're getting at here, which is the the interaction between the textiles and the architecture. I tend to think that there was a, a layering so that uh, you would have, you know, uh, maybe a, a real built arcade that would. Be the backdrop for a woven textile depicting an arcade, mm-hmm. um, and that we have pic- depictions of of almost two scale, like life size people in these arcades. So they seem to replicate people in the arcades. So there's like all these layers or levels of layering happening yes. that that are, lo- that are lost, right? Because we don't imagine, we don't, they're so, they're such rare survivors, and we don't imagine them when we think about an arch- arch- architectural space.
0: I've um, got one for you. Yeah. So, the Theodora mosaic in Ravenna. Yes. Right. So, it's a mosaic. Of course, it depicts all the clothing of Theodora and her attendants. But on the left, there's a eunuch who is pulling back a curtain so that her procession can move into, I don't know, the stairway to go up to the gallery. I don't know, something like that. So it's a mosaic depicting an architectural scene in which a textile is being pulled back so that the group can continue to process. And that little detail of the eunuch pulling back the curtain was used uh, by Italian colleague uh, Paolo Cesaretti for the cover of his translation of Procopius' the Secret History.
1: Oh yes, it is actually. Yes, that's right, yeah. Which,
0: which was this, the perfect choice, you know, yes. pulling back the curtain to reveal the, right? Yes. And I was, he sent it to me and I was just, oh, if only I had used that, I I, <laughs> <laughs> was, like, I was so jealous. I was so jealous when I saw that because it's so perfect. Yes. Uh, anyway.
1: From my perspective as a person working with textiles, what I appreciate about that mosaic is, you know, go back and look. There are so many different kinds of textiles depicted. Probably many of them silk. Um, they have yeah. repeating repeating patterns. So there are a lot of different. There are many different silks I think depicted in that. And it gets to the point, you know, that uh, maybe another uh, a point that requires some suspension of our modern perception. Is that the textiles were probably some of the most valuable possessions in the household. Actually, uh, we tend to think of textiles as sort of you know like fast fashion that you right. can go to Gap and buy a T-shirt you know for five dollars. Um, but in fact, in 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 the time, the textiles were were highly uh, valuable, highly desired and reused for many, many generations. So we can, as I was mentioning before, we have instances of repair on some of the textiles. And I can think of a curtain at the Met where they carbon dated. So that means they take a scientific sample and they put it in a machine and they figure out the amount of carbon to get a date. And this carbon dating for one part of the textile was 150 years difference to the repaired part of the textile.
0: Oh yeah, wow.
1: So again that that's giving you a sense of longevity that the objects were really used until they were no longer serviceable anymore. Um, oh, right. and yeah, so that this is where the, the conservator and scientific evidence can can help us a lot to to get at get at how the things were used.
0: Well, on that note I think we should bring it to a close. I I actually would love to have another discussion with you, which is about Byzantine fashion. You've written about that, too, but maybe we can schedule that separately. And just an encouragement to everybody in the audience when it's possible, again, to go and take a look at your your nearest museum that has um, ancient textiles or go to the Do collection when, when it's open. Uh, also in Athens, I think the Byzantine and it's called the Byzantine and Christian Museum in Athens has a great collection of Coptic textiles in, in one of its corners. So I remember seeing that. So I'm going to go and see that. Uh, well, assuming I get to, you know, back to Greece this summer, which I hope I do. Uh, so, Betsy, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your thoughts and the objects that you have in the vault.
1: And thank you for coming. It was such a, a great conversation, and I I always learn so much looking at the art with other people. I think really? looking at art is really, you know, it's a very personal experience looking at objects like these. But then it can be a very social one, um, and especially in COVID times where we're not able to gather and look at art together, uh, it it it's wonderful to talk about these things with you. So thank you.
0: Yeah, they come alive in conversation. All right, Betsy. Thanks again. Okay. Take care.